c'est vrai. Je suis un ananas. Now, in the uh, towers of uh, Edmonton... I'm not a Tory. I don't speak on both sides. I do not use crack cocaine, nor am I an addict of crack cocaine. Fabulous. I am Jessica, and I am absolutely ready for another Janelle episode, and I am just covered in blood. Hooray! I'm Janelle, and I'm not covered in blood. Should we? Or yeah. were we is this what we were doing? Is this the dress code? I thought we were, ge- I thought we were getting in into the ambiance of the thing, and just liberally coating ourselves in blood. Just full carry? Does it have to be pig's blood? Full on. Just... Yeah. The blood of I your choosing? Like, you can choose whatever blood. Costuming blood, I... Yes, acceptable, but only if you can't get the real stuff. <laughs> you know, it always looks so fake, especially when it doesn't dry right. Uh, any, 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 any wise person worth their salt will catch you in a minute with f- costume blood. It's too red. No vegan alternatives. It's, mm. it's a real thing or nothing. Yeah. Anyway, I actually am co- covered in a couple flecks of blood. Do I want to know why? Because uh, when I got home today... Uh, my sister's dog was so excited. Uh, she wagged her tail so hard, she cut it, and then, because she was still so excited, she continued wagging it so hard that she sprayed blood all over the house. Oh, So, uh, I mean, there's, there's some blood. There's some blood. Oh. We don't deserve dogs. <laughs> <laughs> we don't. She was just so excited, she could not stop... Exsanguinating. <laughs> I've never loved or cherished anybody enough to cover the house in my own blood as a celebration <laughs> of their return from a brief absence. I've never been like, man, it's been six days. Let me just let me just bleed everywhere for a second. I'm just gonna shake my blood all over the house. You know, it's it's a very special conne- a connection between human and animal that I think is is hard to replicate anywhere else. Just sometimes we just... wear their blood. That's yeah. Some sometimes, sometimes you end up with just a little bit of their blood all over your calf. <laughs> it's true friendship, goddammit. <laughs> Intimacy. Yeah, yeah. Well, last time I did a topic, I promised you that next time we would have quadruple homicide, and so Woo-hoo. by God, you shall have quadruple homicide, and there shall be. Well. Uh, quadruple death quadruple death death plus a bonus disappearance so don't say that i never give you anything because mm. i'm about to give you nightmares uh, <laughs> <laughs> and nightmares yeah technically something you might think that you're ready for this topic but none of us are ready for this topic you'll never be ready for no. this topic your dying day your loved ones hovering about you you will think back and you will go like yeah still not okay you need to go stop right now and go hug somebody, right? Like, I don't care if you're on the bus. You need to hug a stranger on the bus. Have a huggable person at the ready. Because this is the last time that you will not flinch away from human contact. So you need to cherish that. Savor the touch of another living, breathing creature while you can. Yeah, it is. It's time for a... And savor their blood. Um, Because as we've learned, that's true love. Always ask affirmative consent before you taste someone else's blood. It's an important thing. Always. Always. And and get some blood checks. That's, that's... No, that's also, that's that also, way. oh my god, please do not contract hepatitis <laughs> from Jessica's <laughs> advice. 
This is not a Please medical podcast. Not. Please do not I let Jessica be give you hepatitis. For that. No. <laughs> I don't even have hepatitis. <laughs> That's a, it's a real talent passing it on. Then. <laughs> I, I break down barriers every day. Oh my god. You know, that's the real glass ceiling. No. Just the inability for people without hepatitis to give hepatitis oh. to people who, <laughs> to give give other people hepatitis. That's a that's a ceiling that should remain firmly intact. <laughs> mm. God. Um so yeah, this this is gonna be a two part episode. So it's gonna be a two part reminder that the world is a joyless void of untold horrors that can claim you at any time. Yeah. Which is what double you, dose. What you came for, I think. Existential angst. Uh, you, you're still saying it that way, just all these weeks later. Is there a particular way that I'm supposed to say it? Angst. Like a good... Angst. Angst. <laughs> like the angst. good nasally anglophone that you are. But what if I want to be a nasal, nasally francophone? That's, what if that's my dream? I will God. cast you into the sea. You've disappointed me, son. Can I wear floaties? <laughs> <laughs> they will not help you. <laughs> Nothing can help you now, Cinna. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so this is an obscure case that took place in Northern California in 1978, and I mean, like I live and breathe for this kind of true crime stuff, but this uh, this case is almost too much. So I'm going to inflict it on you because it mm. it almost it's almost too much for me. It's it's on the line. Um, so for those of you who are true crime lunatics, even when we're not feeding this into your brain. Um, this is sometimes referred to as the American Dilatov Pass incident, which references a similarly mysterious group incident that occurred in Russia. Tongues were eaten. Yeah, the people who had tongues were found without those tongues, and also they were dead. Um, that's my... The tongue part was upsetting, but also the death. That's my 10-second Dilatov Pass incident summary. <laughs> Russians! Tongueless! Dead! Done. Um, we've never done Moving an episode on. on the Dilatov Pass incident, but we don't really... I mean, we could, but many people who are less insane than us and have... It's been done. Yeah, people who spend less time licking strangers' blood have done this in the past, so you can find one of those episodes. But it's it's a similar concept. So we'll, we'll jump right into it, because I have many, many notes, and... Uh, so many. So many, and the night is... The night is not young. <laughs> the night is comfortably middle-aged. It, it, it is two in the morning. This is actually just early morning at this point. So, on February 24th, 1978, a group of five friends drove up to California State University at Chico, which is way up in Northern California, to watch a basketball game. Yeah, it's important to remember that, like, not all of California has the climate of San Diego. California is a large... It's quite long. It's very long. It's a, it's a big chunk of land, and it's not all just hippies and board shorts it's snow and guns that's the northern half yeah, reasonably mountainous yeah it, it gets up there like san francisco is is even you can go north of that there's uh there's there's more stuff up there's a whole world up there that we just don't talk about <laughs> probably for good reason um so they had driven up to california state university at chico to watch a basketball game and all five of the men were themselves on a basketball team called the Gateway Gators. And this team was based out of the adult vocational rehab facility for the handicap that all five of them attended. So we're going to talk about the people who went missing because, I mean, that's the whole case. It's weird that a team called the Gators is from California. Does California have Gators? I don't actually think so. I think, I don't I strongly associate I'm going to Google it right Florida. now. I have a Google machine in front of me. Um, wow. 
technology. Look at that. No. As I live and breathe. They do not. They do not. Apparently, people bring them over because I guess Floridians just want to spread the love. I don't think that's an invasive species that uh, California needs. Floridians? (laughs) (laughs) Those two. Those those two. Yeah, apparently, apparently they shot one. They shot a four foot long alligator in California, and they had some they had some thoughts about that one because mm. it was brought into California by a random Floridian. They just picked that shit up and geckos are bad enough. Yeah, no, there's isn't that like isn't that like the Floridian equivalent of of, of just bringing your perf dog, just like a four foot gator, <laughs> just stuffed in a little tote a bag with a bow on its head. That's yeah. Oh my god, we need to check on Florida. Yeah, we need to check on Florida as a state more. It's it's I, I think we should just board them up and leave them be. It's nothing but crazy mugshots and alligators. Just <laughs> sink that shit into the I, ocean. Funnily enough, probably the reason why you get so many crazy stories out of Florida. Well, I mean like the first reason is it's Florida. It's Florida, but the it's second reason publication is laws. Florida has really aggressive yeah, sunshine laws. Where like everything gets published and not a lot of things get kept private. Like, there's plenty of people shoving bottle rockets up their asses in Ohio, but, like, we keep their names out of the paper. (laughs) Ohio hides their shame. (laughs) As they should. (laughs) Awesome. Hide it. (laughs) Great. So all five of the men lived at home with their parents at the time of their disappearance, and they were between the ages of 24 and 32. So, despite being adults, they were colloquially referred to as our boys by their families and communities, both before and after their disappearances. And the reason for this is that all of them had some sort of mental issue. So, three of the men, Ted Weir, Bill Sterling, and Jackie Hewitt, had been diagnosed with what was then called mental retardation. That's not a nice... Not nice. That's... Yeah. It's what it was the, the at the time. The terms have changed. The terms have but changed. That was the standard medical term then. Now we would say mild intellectual disability, but yeah, that or was intellectual delay. Yeah. So this is probably by the standards of the day, they have IQs in the below 70s is kind of where we put that. Mhm. Um the for- That's the general cut. Yeah. IQs an imperfect measure, but it's it's a ballpark. Yeah, roughly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, roughly, the fourth man, Jack Madruga, was a military veteran who was considered slow, but he had not been diagnosed formally with, with really anything. He just sort of had some, some challenges. Mm. Um, but he was able to serve in the military. Um, the, yeah. The last man... And there's a certain standard for that. Yeah, yeah you can't... <laughs> they, they won't take you. They're not an equal opportunity employer by any stretch. You have to be a certain level of fine. Oh, yeah. On the way in, at least. On the way out, they don't care. On the way out. Yeah. You can come disassembled in an Ikea bag. Yeah, they're not... They don't give a shit. Um, Not picky. Not too picky. So, the last man, Gary Matthias... Matthias? Matthias? Did not have any intellectual or learning disabilities at all. What was wrong with him was that he was also a military veteran who'd been medically discharged after developing, quote, psychotic depression, which is what we would now call schizophrenia, five years previously. Um, mm-hmm. Matthias's condition was easily controlled with drugs, however, and at the time of his disappearance, he was symptom-free for two years. And um, Okay, so he's stable, he's been uh, under treatment. Yeah, he's stable, He's been he's been being treated for five years, and for the past two years there'd been mm-hmm. no flare-ups, no relapses. He'd just sort of been fine. Um, he was working as an assistant at his stepfather's gardening business, and he was only 25 years old at the time of his disappearance. 
Um, Ted Weir was the oldest to disappear. He was 32. He was a former janitor and snack bar clerk before his parents made him, quote, retire because they were worried that his slowness was affecting the snack bar customers, which... That sounds like a euphemism. Yeah, I don't... It, that's exactly how it was phrased. I don't know I don't what know, it means. I don't know what it means. But that sounds like someone's not telling me something. Yeah, that sound. I I don't know what that means. That's that, exactly how that they phrased it. That strongly smacks of older person trying to talk around something they really don't want to say. They said his slowness was causing problems. I don't know what kinds of problems they were, but he got to retire at the age of 32, so he's doing better in life than I will ever do. <laughs> he's ahead of the ball. He is ahead he's of the ahead ball. Of, he's a, he's, he's living, living life in the fast lane. He's got it. He was said to be handsome, chubby, and trusting. He really liked to wave to strangers and would apparently be put out for hours if they did not wave back. He was pissed. <laughs> Fuck you. Fuck you and your non-waving. Rude. Straight to hell. Wave at him. Yeah, you have to wave at this man. Uh, his best friend in the world was Jackie Hewitt, who was the youngest in the group. And uh, Ted Weir used to get a kick out of phoning up his friends to just read them funny names out of the phone book, which is a fantastic <laughs> hobby. And for you kids listening at home. Adorable. Yeah, phone books are actually a thing that you still get and then you immediately recycle them. So oh, yeah. they still exist, but instantly. Mostly they're used to be torn in half at the gym to prove that you have yeah, many just, muscles. Just just to be just just to show how tough you are. Yep. Yeah. That was his hobby. He would pick up a newspaper, which is also a thing that used to exist, or a phone book and just call up his friends to read them the funny names, which is a phone call I would appreciate getting. I'd be into it. Well actually it depends on how long it is. I can handle about depends on the quality of the funny names too. I can handle about Two minutes of just excellent phone book names. And then you're done. This friendship is over. Yeah, that, that, that's that's the cutoff line for me. Get out of my sight. Like, I have a friend who has an objectively adorable rabbit. But they keep sending me photos of it. And about after about, like, the third angle on the rabbit, I'm just like, Cool, stop or, I, stop or I'm blocking you. <laughs> it's gonna be rough for you when my dog arrives. I've... I've... <laughs> recently adopted a dog, but I'm still waiting for her to uh, arrive into the country. She is a rescue Chihuahua, which is the only way to pronounce that breed. And Absolutely. Chihuahua. I'm just going to say that to somebody in public and they're going to think that I'm mildly brain damaged. But, um... Hyper Chihuahua. Chihuahua. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I'm going to dress her up in tiny little outfits and send you pictures all day whether you like it or not. So, fight me. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> I will win. Fight my six-pound dog. <laughs> Probably weighs less than the rabbit. <laughs> so Jackie Hewitt was the youngest of the bunch at age 24, and he was the shyest of the group. He apparently used to trail his best friend Ted around like a shadow, and Ted was fiercely protective of him. What's really adorable is that Ted would always dial the phone for him whenever he had to make a phone call, because Jackie did not like to do it. Chivalry is not It's not dead. dead. Um, as we mentioned, Jack Madruga was the one who did not have a diagnosed disability. He was just considered sort of slow. But he was a former army vet who'd been recently laid off from his job as a busboy, and he had a driver's license. He's actually the one who was driving the car on the day that they disappeared. His best friend was Bill Sterling. Bill Sterling was one of the ones who, who had been diagnosed. He was a staunchly religious man, and he used to spend hours at the library reading scripture so that he could go to mental hospitals and speak to the patients about finding Jesus, which is kind of... It's nice to have hobbies, I guess. It's it it's very nice. None of the five men had any history of running away, staying out too late, or really rebellious behavior of any kind. 
Matthias would kind of stay out all night sometimes with friends, but he he could handle it. It wasn't considered a concern or a safety risk. No, he knew what he was doing. And the others were sort of homebodies. They didn't like to stray too far from home. So the men were supposed to play in a big basketball tournament on the following day, February 25th. The tournament was a huge deal because the grand prize was a free week-long trip to Los Angeles, and they were all very, very excited about it. So, before leaving to watch the game in Chico on the 24th, all five of them had carefully laid out the basketball uniforms and shoes that they wanted to wear the next day. And Weir had actually asked his mother to wash his scuffed high tops specifically for the game, and Gary Matthias had driven his mother up the wall by constantly reminding her, We got a big game Saturday, don't you let me oversleep. Because this was back when, instead of an alarm clock, you just had a woman. It was better back in the day. Nothing wakes you up like the... Shrill calling of a female, human female. <laughs> That's great. Now I just get woken Better, up. Better, more natural than those fancy alarm clocks and their radium. I just get woken up by the screams inside me. They just mm. build up throughout the night. I just think to myself, eight o'clock, eight o'clock, eight o'clock, and then I just open my eyes and there I am. It's like time travel, but unidirectional. You're like a bird from an Edgar Allan Poe poem. <laughs> Quoth the raven, get the fuck up. <laughs> Excellent. But basically, there was no way that any of these boys would voluntarily blow off or miss this tournament. This this meant a lot mm-hmm. to them. Um, I have not washed my high tops for anything, ever. At all. Oh, no. Not a chance. Heaven forbid. No. They're... Washing one's shoes? I wear them till they decompose around me. They are mere tatters. Like, the f- the fabric is actively decaying. I want to feel the earth beneath my feet. <laughs> before I will consider- Feel the rain on your face. Absolutely. Before I consider throwing out a perfectly good pair of Converse. No. Oh. No, like, this is, this is, like, quite a bit of anticipation for an event. Like, I personally do not understand getting that excited about Basketball. That's what they call this human sport. But specifically basketball. I'm not that excited for my own damn birthday. No, I have to sit through every basketball game uh, that Columbia University plays. It's just part of the whole marching band thing. And it just, it sounds like a symphony of shoe squeaks. That's all it is. That's enough of that. This is this is an auditory bum, component bum, to the sport bum. that I don't that I do not enjoy. No, no, that is unfortunate. It's too much. So the game at Chico ended at 10 p.m. with a victory for the visiting team, which was the team that the men had been there to support. So they were all very excited. And afterwards, the group piled back into Jack Madruga's turquoise and white 1969 Mercury Montego, which ow, ow. looks exactly like every other car made in the 1960s. They all boxy as hell. Yeah, they all just look like pointy shoe boxes, and they were made out of nothing but lead. Yeah, this is back when gaff was cheap, and people just didn't care about wind resistance. Yep, my father. I will drive through the wind. Yeah, my father still has his 1969 Toyota Thunderbird. It's just slowly sinking the floor in the family garage. Memory. You get about a piece of history. Four and a half feet to the gallon. It's a great car. <laughs> <laughs> So they piled into the Montego to begin- Half the speed of smell. Oh yeah, basically. Um, What's really important to know about these cars to keep in mind is that like old 1960s muscle cars are not meant for off-roading and this will become very relevant. Decidedly. Yeah, if you're going off-roading and you have a choice between a 1969 Mercury Montego and literally anything, just pick- just 
Go off-roading Just in a Corolla. A yeah, anything. Anything at all. A go-kart. Push the limits of the Fiat. Like, just... <laughs> <laughs> like, you could literally pick a Pinto, a car that actually exploded, and you would be better off. <laughs> because it's like, it's a car that's about as aerodynamic and low to the ground as a skateboard. And weighs 4,000 pounds. Like, there's no... This is a glorified concrete block on wheels. If your driveway is at too steep of an angle, you're gonna hit the bumper. Like, it's... <laughs> it's, it's not great. They're not... They like, like the car real this, low to this, the ground. This is an ego car. It's not... It's not designed for versatility or utility. Well, it's designed for the 1960s. It's designed to take your girl to make out point. Like, it's... You're going to the chocolate shop. Like, if you if you live a life in idyllic 1969 Riverdale, then you're... Yeah, where all the, where all the roads are flat and all the all the sun is sh- shining and, and no black people are allowed to be in town Yikes, after sundown. Yikes, I did not make that joke, and it happened anyway. <laughs> <laughs> I let the record show that I was not at fault. I did not make a fucking sundown town I joke. I have a certain view of the 60s. The moment it was available. All right. <laughs> and only a certain type Tell of person. Tell me I'm wrong. Yeah. You weren't you weren't driving to the voters booth if you uh if you weren't white. Oh god. Um so they they piled into this flashback to a more racist era. Although there was there was less than a 10-year-old car at the time to begin the 50-mile drive home. So all five of the men that night were dressed in like light clothing, which I should have specified as light as in not meant for winter. Not light, as in mm-hmm. they were all in matching linen pantsuits. <laughs> <laughs> Off d- cream color. It's very nice. Um, There's a lot of pastels. Yeah, no, not that. Although it's the 70s, so God knows. Neon's a bit more likely. Mm, burnt orange. Mm. <laughs> wood paneling. I assume everybody in the 70s was just wood paneled, like their houses. Yep. Wood panel your house, wood panel your, your car, wood panel your cat, wood panel your mom. Wood panel. <laughs> Versatile it's material. It's classy. It's good. Um, none of the men were particularly outdoorsy wood people. Wood made of vinyl. Mm, great. It's awesome. Scratchy. They had no intention of spending time outdoors on this trip. Ted Weir didn't even bring a coat. He just sort of showed up, as is. So before heading home, they stopped at Bears Market, three blocks from the university stadium, just as it was clothing- closing. Um, so there they purchased a Hostess cherry pie, a Langendorf lemon pie, a Snickers, and something called a Marathon bar, which was a caramel chocolate bar, which was actually the precursor to the Cadbury Curly Whirly bar. Marathons were discontinued in 1981. All of these is just, all of this is just mouth noises to me. These are just, all right, you hate confection and childhood joy, I forgot. I just, I've never seen either of those items sold. Uh, it's because, there's a reason for that. It might be, it might be a... What? Well, I mean, you didn't exist prior to 1981. That's an important reason. True. But (laughs) were they even sold in Canada? Curly Whirlies are currently sold in Canada, but they are in the imported goods aisle because they're a UK product. Mm. Uh, The USA currently has an import ban on Cadbury products. So if you are an American and you were not of a chocolate eating age before 1981, you have never had one. You poor unfortunate soul. Mm. It looks like a piece of DNA made out of caramel and chocolate. It's delightful. Dangerous. I know. Against the law. The clerk at the store remembered them clearly because they arrived just before closing and the clerk was irritated about them ha- like keeping the store open later. So the clerk was annoyed. So they specifically remember these men. 
Um, mm-hmm. The men also purchased two Pepsis and a quart and a half of milk, which is the most Jessica road trip provision available. <laughs> All of this, honestly, like, in this entire list of, like, two pies, two, two, two candy bars, some soda, and milk. <laughs> it's basically your grocery list. That, that's just what I eat. Mm. <laughs> Nothing like unrefrigerated milk for a long car ride. Throw some blueberries and uh, blueberries and cream in that, and like that—that's the Jessica diet. How are you alive? I—I I literally don't know. I actually, speaking of lukewarm milk, my my father oh God. on a recent road trip expressed distress multiple times at how like sometimes he'll be about to throw something away that's been in the fridge for a while, and then he'll come step stairs and find me eating it. Oh God, <laughs> Jessica. So my new nickname apparently is the Iron Stomach. Oh, you're like a human goat that craves blood. <laughs> oh, no, this is. Are you just, just having my poor sixty year old father look me in the eye and just go like, "What did I do wrong? <laughs> How are you not dead? <laughs> what are you?" <laughs> I just want to ask, like, are you eating blueberries and cream in the car? Like, are your parents driving and they just hear, like, and it's just you drinking half and half straight out of a bowl? (laughs) Last time it was mashed potatoes. In a moving car? Yes. Where did you get them? Do you just pull these out from the crevices in reality that appear around you? You just reach across time and space and pull out a bowl of mashed potatoes? (laughs) <laughs> I, have a, I have a small plastic travel bowl that I may or may not have prepped something potato goodness in. And, uh, yeah, by the time I was eating it, it was too late for them to question my judgment. <laughs> Your father's just driving not around. not too late for them to mock me. Trying to enjoy the civil war of a nation he does not live in. Well, you're eating mashed potatoes <laughs> in the background. What a fun family trip. These <laughs> shows seem like a wild bunch. We're we're very fun. I was actually just thinking. I, I I did in fact spend the last two weeks or so in Virginia, looking at all the civil war civil war memorabilia and sites that I could handle, just wandering from battlefield to battlefield, getting heat stroke. And uh, I'm really passionate about history, and my dad is just super passionate about history in the same way that my mom is just unbelievably passionate about uh about crime. And I was just thinking, hey, in terms of my understanding of gender roles, I'm the dad of this podcast. <laughs> I don't, I don't even I'm know the dad. how to formulate a response to that. What is time to look at some muskets, kids? <laughs> no, it's time for murder. No, this is not a stable household to raise a child in. I think you're living proof of that. <laughs> you are living proof that this does not work. Excellent. My my mother considers battlefields insufficiently viscerally gruesome. She stayed in the car. <laughs> if there's no entrails, she's not getting out of the car. I mean, there was entrails. They just don't describe them, which is boring. What a fun family vacation. Next stop, the fucking <laughs> Donner party, I guess. Like, <laughs> yeah. and my sis and my sister's only request was uh, to repeatedly put me on a roller coaster until I until I nearly puked. <laughs> My family so, just fun trip. goes to Costco and eats hot dogs, but <laughs> yours sounds way more fun. All right. So after picking up their 
quart and a half of unrefrigerated milk for the ride home. Mm. Uh, the boys left the store, and this is the last confirmed sighting of them alive. There is another possible sighting of them between this point and what happens, but we'll we'll get into that later. So, around 5 o'clock in the morning that night, morning, whatever you want to call it, Ted Weir's mother woke up with a feeling of dread, and she checked Ted's bed, and sure enough, he wasn't there. So, she phoned the other boys' mothers, and most of them were actually already- they were still sitting up from the night before, worried sick, because none of their sons had arrived home. And as- mm-hmm. yeah, as we previously mentioned, this is completely out of character for all five of them. None of them wander off or yeah, run they're away. they're homebodies. They're homebodies. They like being home. They like, you know, it's a good life there. I agree with them. Yeah. Being home with mom, getting fed, it's the life. So the boys did not return for their basketball tournament in the morning, and they did not make any contact with their parents. So by the time it reached 8 p.m. the day of their tournament with no word from any of them, Jack Bedruga's mother called the police. And Oh, yes. They, they, they must be frantic at this point. Yeah, that feels like a long delay by today's standards, but like you have to remember, kids, this is the era of phone books and print media. So... This was the in the pre cell phone era. You gave people a little more wiggle room than you do now. Mm-hmm. I'm pretty much yeah, like, yeah convinced my friends are dead if they're two minutes late. Oh, absolutely. But back in the day, like, yeah, any number of zany sitcom scenarios could happen that would delay you for twelve hours. Mm-hmm. Like you could absolutely just end up in a situation where, like, you know, we 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 lost. There was there were no phones and there was a traffic jam. Sorry, ma. You know that's an entire possibility. Whereas, like in the modern day, like, people text me if I don't show up within a two-minute radius of when I said I would. <laughs> if you are not actively streaming your life on Facebook Live, I assume that you are di- you've died. You're dead. Yeah. Anytime that I am not currently communicating with somebody over the internet, they might as well be deceased to me. Mm-hmm. I'm like a goldfish or a, 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 a developmentally delayed baby. <laughs> Just people don't exist to me the moment they leave. We're still working on object permanency. Got the master's degree, but <laughs> object permanency is a tricky one. <laughs> I mean, I... Uh, <laughs> Derrida, I understand. The existence of people beyond my line of sight, not so much. No, it's too much. It's too Actually, complicated. Fuck Derrida. <laughs> I hate him. All right. You can work that out with him. I hate him. <laughs> okay. So another full day went by without any word from the men, and the police began to take a serious interest and started searching the roads that they might have traveled on. On Tuesday, February 28th, they located Drac Madruga's car. And this is the last part of this case that is going to make any goddamn sense at all. The, ex- the continued existence of the car. It all comes back to object permanency. It's very important that you grasp this, Jessica. Oh, you're not replying? Car? I think you've ceased to exist. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, Jessica, cars exist. Every second that passes, the universe is created and destroyed once more. All right. Got some strong coffee in you this morning. (laughs) I don't drink coffee. It gives me paranoia. Oh, good. You already believe that the world is destroyed and reborn every second, so I don't think we can afford... (laughs) That's that's a hill we cannot afford to go any further down. We cannot cede any more ground here. <laughs> the car was located 70 miles from Chico, but it wasn't on any of the roads that the men would have taken to get home. Instead, it was out on a rem- remote rural mountain road. The car was partially stuck in a snowbank, enough that the tires would have spun, but it wasn't really stuck. Five men could easily have pushed this car free. And the car... It was just sort of, like, 
wedged in there. Minorly yeah. inter- inopportune. Sort of mildly beached. Mm. But, you know, we live, we grew up in a snowy area. They're stuck and they're like, stuck. Like, like a toddler in a, to- it, like, in, in, in a wading pool. They're just, they're currently on their back, but they'll be up in no you time. Got, you could just, yeah, just tip them over. Just yeah, like, be like the proletariat crabs. <laughs> Which is an obscure just reference from an earlier episode. Right. It's not, it's not how idioms Don't worry about or it. people work. Um, the car was still in perfect working order. It still had a quarter tank of gas. The keys were missing, but police were easily able to hotwire it right on the scene, which is another thing that you could do in the 1970s, kids. Mm. Now they now they try to design that out, but back in the day, back in the day. Yes. You could also make a pinto into a bomb by just lightly tapping its rear end. So it was a fun time to be alive. Yeah, you used to be able to just rip the wires out of your dashboard and start your car, but uh, now Siri will yell at you because your car's a computer. <laughs> she watches you. She listens. <clears throat> she legitimately does. She does. She does actually does. This is, for once, not just me being creep. I do this podcast with within microphone range of Siri, and my Google ads are horrifying. It's getting weird. Yeah, it keeps showing me abortion clinic ads, and I think it just knows that I shouldn't reproduce. It doesn't know what I'm up to. But it knows it doesn't want children brought into my life. <laughs> See, I just always get Zionist ads, you know, encouraging me to claim my birthright in Israel. So... Ah, uh, yes. Peugeot. The noble Jewish surname. <laughs> I think it's just confused by the fact that I actually have a cousin named Zion. <laughs> you just keep typing Zion over and over. We're giving you what you want. <laughs> That's, that's a topic we're not going to go any further into. <laughs> so, there were four roadmaps in the glove compartment, including a map of California, all neatly folded. The wrappers from the snacks they'd purchased were all scattered throughout the backseat. The marathon bar had only been half eaten, but everything else was gone. I mean, it's hard to complete a marathon. I know, it's, you gotta pace yourself. That's a terrible <laughs> joke. That's our worst. This is It's all uphill from here, people. <laughs> So here's the really strange thing, though. The road that the car was found on was basically a goat path. It was less of a road and more of just this rutted, bumpy, muddy trail up the mountain, completely littered with rocks and debris. The Mercury, as we've- Which is weird. I would have turned around. Yeah, we've already mocked the Mercury, but again, it's a heavy American car with a very low undercarriage. This is this is meant for fucking Grease Lightning-style street racing. It is not meant for this. Yeah. It's for looking cool while cruising around town. Exactly. That's what it does. That's what it's for. That's what it's good at. Somehow, though, this car had been driven up a rocky mountain road in total darkness in the middle of the night without sustaining any damage to the underside or even becoming significantly dirty, which is bizarre. Huh. Yeah. It's a bit weird. So police believe that the only way it was possible to pull this off is if the driver was either insanely precise and cautious which is, again, incredibly difficult to do on a dark road you've never driven down, or if the driver was very familiar with the area. Jack Madruga hated the cold, he hated the outdoors, and he had never been to this area before. Mm -hmm. When they looked into it later, they actually realized that none of the men had ever been to that exact area before at all. Bill Sterling had been on a fishing trip and stayed at a cabin near that road, but that was eight years previously, and he'd had a shitty time and refused to ever go back there. (laughs) Yeah, his family kept going back and he was like, no, that's enough of this outdoors nonsense. And I, f- I feel. <laughs> What's, you like it outside? God, no. Pass on that, man. Yeah, I, f- I feel. 
I absolutely feel. I'm not going to be part of your camping system. <laughs> I live in a beautiful city ripe for exploring, and I spend most of my time glaring out of a Starbucks. <laughs> I'm not going to roast some weenies or fish. That's that's the two activities. Can't get that by me. That's that's it. The the two genders. <laughs> <laughs> Roasting weenies and and fishing. Oh no. <laughs> <laughs> i regret i regret it immediately that sounds like a very strange euphemism but i'm not sure for what <laughs> i i don't have the time or the emotional fortitude to explain it to you um, <laughs> if you, even if you did i don't think i have the capacity to understand nope. so there's no way that any of these men were secret backpackers either like i said matthias had a habit of sometimes staying yeah. out all night but these men led very predictable, very scheduled lives. They were... Their time is well accounted for. They're almost always with their parents. Um, yeah, when they're not with their parents, they're with their friends, or they're at their, um, vocational their rehabilitation home. Yeah. thing. So yeah. it's important to remember in general going forward that these were not men who craved adventure. These are not crazy 20-somethings who are going on late-night adventures at the side of a mountain. These are men who crave routine and predictability. Yeah, they stayed home at night with mom and dad. In general, people with intellectual disabilities need a lot of routine in their lives. They don't like sudden or unintended interruptions into their plans, generally. And if you... No, like, the increased complexity is distressing, and it makes it harder for them to cope with day-to-day -day life. Yeah, they have a routine, and if you disrupt it, it can take you days to fully recover. They like to know exactly what's going on, where they're going to go, what time things are going to happen, where they're going to be. Not all 20-somethings are overgrown frat boys who are down for a spontaneous late-night woods adventure. No, like, these are guys who prefer, prefer life to be predictable and comfortable. Yeah, absolutely. So, the weather turned hostile shortly after the car was discovered. And two days after the car was found, a huge winter storm dumped a full nine inches of snow on the area. Police were forced to pretty much suspend the search after several search team members nearly froze to death after their snow cats became stuck in drifts. And a snow cat, by the way, is a type of winter all-terrain vehicle. The searchers did not- I'm already disappointed. I know, they did not literally ride mountain lions into the mountains. <laughs> That would have been badass, and that's if I ever go missing, that's how I want to be found. If that or not at all. I want you to ride to me. Abreast a cougar. Abreast a mighty cougar. Or not at all. Let me die. Not at all. Leave me here. Leave me to my fate. Yeah, these are, these are snow ATVs. But regardless of whatever they were riding, the search had to be abandoned until after the spring thaw, so they kind of gave it up until the spring. So by June of that year, the mountains had finally thawed out enough to allow motorcyclists to travel through the area. And on June 4th, a group of cyclists was out for a Sunday ride in the mountains when they came across a forest service camp at the end of a remote road. And when they arrived there, they were- This sounds like the beginning of a horror this movie. Is, this is straight- this entire episode is straight horror movie. What part of five people disappeared from a mountainside in the middle of the night is not textbook horror. Is that just Tuesday <laughs> at your house? Do people just come and go from your life and all you ever I find mean, is that's their just car? that's what people do over the winter. They just disappear into the mists of the mountain. We have a large family. It shrinks every year. <laughs> we do have a large family. And most people die in horrifying accidents. Your entire life is a Stephen King novel. Mmm, true. With less mane and- I've never seen a monster clown. Yeah, less- fewer clowns, fewer mane, more Grand Prairie. Yeah. 
Maybe the sewers just aren't large enough. (laughs) Goddamn. So as soon as they arrived in this camp, they were struck by a horrifying smell, which... You know that this story is not a good sign. You already know where this is going. This does not have a... In case you were wondering, in case all of my warnings fell onto deaf, oblivious ears, this story does not have a happy ending. So the camp was made up of different trailers, including a main trailer that was nearly 60 feet long. And Forest Service doesn't just leave their camps unlocked for any idiot to wander into. No. you They keep that shit it's, locked it's, up. It's government property. They lock it up. Yeah. The group noticed that a window into- They can't just let any bear wander in and just, like, use the sofa. Right? Bears are notorious for their use of door handles, and we can't allow it. Mm. Gotta lock that shit up. And the way that they always, like, use all your, uh, use all your cosmetics and- They use all just... the complimentary shampoo, and they still smell like Absolutely. bear. Absolutely. Completely unacceptable. So when they noticed that this trailer had been broken into, they entered the main trailer, and that is where they discovered the body of Ted Weir, which is, as you recall, the fellow who got a great kick out of the phone book. Well, now that's sad. I told you this was- we literally started with the term quadruple homicide slash death. Again, object permanence. (laughs) It's not even object permanence, that's short-term memory. (laughs) There is no time, there is no space, there is only the now. I have a podcast with a human goldfish covered in blood. (laughs) Wonderful. Stay with us here, because this is gonna get real weird. So, Ted was stretched out on a bed inside the trailer, frozen to death. Frozen slash starved. Eight bedsheets had been tucked around his body and head in a manner that suggested someone else had done it for him. Uh, the pathologist who examined him said that his feet were probably in far too much pain for him to really move, let alone wrap himself in eight bedsheets. His leather shoes were missing, and his bare feet were badly frostbitten, incredibly, incredibly damaged. The bedside table contained Ted's nickel ring, which had his name engraved on it, along with his gold necklace, his wallet, which still contained all of its cash, all the original contents, a partially melted candle, and a gold watch that did not belong to any of the five men. The watch was missing its crystal, which, for you kids out there, you're learning a lot this episode. It's been a real blast from the past. Uh, A watch crystal is the... Babies learning their history. Yeah, if you're ever pretentious enough to own a Rolex, uh, which is the only real purpose we have for wristwatches today. Status symbols. Just bragging rights. I don't I don't even do people with Rolexes today even bother to wind them or is it is it just jewelry now? Can we just admit that this it's, is jewelry? It's purely a fashion It's man jewelry. Statement. Your mm-hmm. your crystal is the glass piece over top of the face that keeps you from poking the hands to try to make time go faster. Yeah, like in a regular watch it would be called like the lens or the glass. Here we use crystal because it's a gold watch. <laughs> but yeah, we're not we're not getting we're not done. It's going to get weirder. It's just going to keep getting weirder. We're just going down and down this rabbit hole. So, in life, Ted had been a heavy man by 1970 standards, weighing in at around 200 pounds, which is... Th- today? Not so heavy. No, no. not so much. Um, the body on the bed, however... Sprightly. Yeah. It's a, it's a dad bod, as we would call it. Mm. Dad bod. So, the body on the bed was thin, and it was estimated that Ted had lost around 80 to 100 pounds before he died. Oh. This is not post-mortem decay. This is, this is in life, he lost 80 to 100 pounds before he died. skeletal. Yeah. His face also showed significant beard growth. And taken together, the beard growth and the weight loss, they estimate that Ted survived for around 8 to 13 weeks after his disappearance. Oh, no. He was alive out there for two to three months, slowly starving and freezing to death. 
unfortunate. Yeah, a little unfortunate. At first, though, there was no sign of the other men. So search teams who combed the site the next day, however, came across two more of them. Madruga and Sterling's remains were discovered on June 5th, around eight miles from the trailer, lying on opposite sides of the road that led to the Forest Service camp. So they were between the car and the trailer. On either side of the road, Madruga's body was lying on its back facing upwards, and they figured that post-mortem he was dragged by animals toward a stream because he'd been partially consumed. This is a gross episode, by the way. I probably should have warned you 40 minutes ago, but this is this is not going to be a good one. I've been eating pasta this entire time. <laughs> that's a that's my favorite pod. Gotta get my podcasting carbs in. <laughs> Energy. Mm, out of mashed potatoes, I take it? <laughs> we just got back to the house. We haven't stopped. It's just butter noodles and mashed potatoes. Man, man can live on these alone. Heaven forbid it's Alfredo sauce. Mm. Madruga's right hand was clutching his watch, and he still had the car keys with him. So that's dedication. Uh, at this mm. point, though, Sterling was nothing but scattered skeletal remains. Okay, so significantly, significant more either exposure or uh, wildlife interference. They figure post-mortem wildlife interference. If you die okay. in the woods, things will eat you, is basically the, the law of the jungle here. Yeah, like, unless you are well hidden and, like, there's very little access to your body, that is what will happen. If you die in your home, your pets will eat you, so that's fun, too. Yeah. I mean, they pr- they probably will wait for a bit, but they will get hungry. Yeah, you you become food to them much faster than you'd like to think. I can't remember which ones wait longer, the dogs or the cats. Dogs. I think it's dogs. Dogs wait, wait longer, longer, right? Cats eat you immediately. Cats are a little mo- cats are a little more mercenary in terms of their appetite. <laughs> like at last, <laughs> the moment you stop moving, they're coming for mm. you. If you take a nap that's slightly too long, if you fall asleep for fourteen hours. They're, they're, they'll eat you. <laughs> if you sleep too long, you'll wake up to your cat just gently seasoning you. It's upsetting. <laughs> just sizing you up. Well, if I get eaten by a chihuahua, I'm going to be real mad. I mean, that would be adorable, though. Aw, she's so cute. <laughs> so. Uh, but, but, but when did, when did they die? Well, did we know? we'll, we'll, we'll kind of get in. There's, this is all theory, because... Um, we don't really know what happened. This is sort of, we found bones in the woods and we're extrapolating. But mm-hmm. two days later, on June 7th, uh, Jackie Hewitt's remains were discovered by his own father, which is why typically oh. they don't allow... Unfortunately. Yeah, they don't typically actually want families to join in search parties for missing people for this exact reason. They're, they're going to make you yeah, because tack up Because there's an additional level of tragedy here. Yeah, they know that this... They prefer you make phone calls. Yeah. So, Jackie's father had been discouraged from joining the search for this exact reason. And at first, all they found of Jackie was his spine and some scattered bones with his jeans and shoes nearby. And the next day, they actually discovered his skull. It had rolled 100 yards downhill from the rest of his body. His teeth were intact, and they were able to make it a match to Hewitt's dental records. Hewitt was much closer to the trailer than the other two had been, and was also on the side of the road leading to the site. So, he was just outside of the campsite. Autopsies determined that all four men had died of hypothermia. I have no idea how intact your body has to be before they can determine it froze to death, but apparently they're pretty good at this. They manage somehow. You can you can be a pile of bones and they're like, yep, those are some frozen bones. That's some thermia there. Mm, sucks to suck. What they think happened is they believe that late stage, well, they don't, we know this. This is not a belief. This is true. Late-stage hypothermia makes you incredibly sleepy. 
Um, a lot of victims die of hypothermia because they lay down for a quick quote-unquote nap, which becomes a quick quote-unquote death. And they suspect that this is what happened to the men found by the road. They think- They got too tired. They started feeling- they started feeling sleepy. They just lay down and never got up. Yep. Jack Hewitt was found with his genes nearby, so there's also an effect in late-stage hypothermia called paradoxical undressing. So when you get close to the end in hypothermia, um, you feel the sudden urge to rip off all your clothes. You start feeling mm-hmm. very, very, very warm toward the end. Yeah. So warm. Confused yeah. state where, like, your thermal regulation is just completely off and you start feeling hot. Your body just breaks down and then it makes you naked. Mm-hmm. So they think that yeah, they like, succumb to hypothermia. This isn't like this isn't like a, a a sexy stripping thing. This is this is your brain just completely losing all grasp and having all of its wires crossed. Yeah, this is happens. You put a human brain in a freezer for too long. It just it makes you want to strip your clothes off, and th- mm. then die. The signals get confused a, a little bit. So yeah, it's like when you're it's like when you're halfway through two different channels on the radio. Except with more nudity and more. Death. I was gonna say, except for, except for instead of getting rather than like the incoherent sounds of Terry Clark crooning through static. It just makes you want to expose your bare penis to subarctic temperatures. Close yeah, enough. Which I'm under the impression is unwise. Yeah, it's not. It's it's not good. Gary Mathias's remains were never found. To this day, Gary is considered a missing person. He has never been confirmed to be deceased. They do know that he made it to the trailer because his tennis shoes were found inside the trailer and police speculate that he took his shoes off and then took Ted's leather shoes. They're not entirely sure, but um, frostbite causes your feet to swell up because frostbite is a disease that makes no sense. And mm. uh, Ted wore larger shoes than Gary, so they think that he may have taken Gary or Ted's shoes because they were slightly larger. To this day, though, yeah, that's, that's the only trace of him they ever found was his tennis shoes. His ultimate fate is unknown. If he's still alive out there somewhere, he'd be about 65 years old right now. Eerie. A little a little spooky. A little spooky. They believe that he's dead. Like, to be clear, they, they're operating on the theory here that he has died. But the... Which makes sense. Um, Although, I do believe that that means you're cheating. You said four. I said four and a disappearance. Are you not satisfied? <laughs> I guess you can think of it kind of like a bonus. It's, it is a bonus, uh, ex- except the bonus bonus the bonus is probably death. Um, they believe that Gary died somewhere in the woods and they just haven't found him yet. They believe that um, mm. he may have tried to hike out. So we'll, we'll kind of get into that. This is this is probably not going to be a two part. This is probably just going to be a really long one part because we're kind of zipping through these notes. But yeah, once again, though, this is not even the final layer of weird. We're going... Sub basement. There's, There's a sub basement. Like nine layer dip of weird. It is a nine layer dip of weird. It's like one of those little Russian nesting what dolls. Would the sour cream be of human horror. Well, the the sour cream is probably the fact that this was not a series of empty trailers sitting out in the woods. This was a fully stocked Forest Service campsite, completely stocked with supplies in case you actually had to put it to use. So, for one thing. Ready, ready, and it w- willing and able. Hold, hold on to your sphincter because it's gonna get real strange. For one thing, the trailer had a built-in fireplace, and the trailer itself was full of matches and obvious fuel like paperback books and wooden furniture. But there was no evidence of anybody attempting to start a fire on the site or in the fireplace. Again, these are men who died of hypothermia. Furthermore, 
there was a shed outside that contained a huge propane tank that was hooked to the trailer. Literally all they had to do was turn the valve to on and the trailer would have had gas and heat. And again, all four men died of hypothermia on or near a campsite filled with fuel, even though that we know at least probably two of them were alive for 13 weeks or more. Oh boy. The trailers also contained supplies of heavy clothing that foresters would use to keep warm, but none of it had been touched. Yeah, like, I my first thought would not be to use the 18 bed sheets if there's, like, heavy woolens and propane nearby. Yeah, there's there's parkas and there's there's that kind of stuff nearby. And yet they never take any of it. And like we we do know that like that they'll like a lot of these men have some mental difficulties. But like your first thought in walking into a building is like is there a way to make this building warm? But I mean, these are these are not men who are helpless. These are men who require a little extra help, but, like, it doesn't take a lot of survival skill to realize that you should set some books on fire if you're cold. Yeah, like... There's matches right there. That, like... Like, the mere fact that, like, they... they, These men hold... Have held jobs. They have... Are fully capable of completing complex tasks. They were fully expected to go away for the weekend on their own and to come back. Yeah. Like, they... They play on a basketball team. people. Yeah. They've they've got basic stuff. And again, Gary Mathias makes it to the trailer. We know this. His shoes mm-hmm. are there. We're pretty sure that he survived to the trailer. And he's the one with the treated schizophrenia, yeah, right? Yeah, he has no intellectual disabilities. He's, so he's functionally normal. He's ex-military. He knows what he's doing. Mm-hmm. There was also no attempt made to cover the broken window with anything, even though it was definitely letting cold air and snow into the trailer. They didn't try to board it up. They didn't put a sheet over it. Nothing. Also, to keep the weird coming... There was a shed full of food provisions on the premises, and they the men actually did access the storage shed, and they opened around a dozen canned rations, and presumably ate them. But there was another locker inside the same shed that they're already rummaging through, and they're already eating stuff in there. There was a locker in that shed that was filled with enough dehydrated meals to last five men an entire year, and it had been completely untouched. Yeah, and we're not done. This this elevator of crazy goes all the way down. One of the cans that they found had been opened with an army issue P38 can opener, which is something that you need to be trained how to use if you don't want to maim the can or yourself. It looks like <laughs> it it does. It just, it looks like it's mad at you. It looks like it's, a weapon it's... of war. <laughs> <laughs> it was made by the army for the army. It does. It it, it looks like it's an all like yeah, you like, should be It's it's like it's like a it's like a a soldier's trench shovel back in back in back in World War Two. It, it it could double as a weapon. It's needlessly <laughs> esoteric, needlessly proprietary. You need training how to use it. It's a fucking can opener, but it looks like something you would use to like punch holes in a sturdy buffalo hide. Like it doesn't make any sense. <laughs> but it was used perfectly to open one of the cans, which means that most likely Matthias survived long enough to make it to the campsite and start opening rations. So Ted was not on his own here. Matthias was there and he was going through rations. So why would he open one locker containing cans and not open an adjacent locker full of dehydrated food? It's it's not hard to prepare. There was fruit cocktail and Mexican food. There was all kinds of stuff in there that was not difficult to prepare or use. Again, he's Mm -hmm. ex-military. Dehydrated meal rations are not foreign to him. Yeah, like... 
I'm not X anything. But I can add water. But like, and I am, as previously stated, known for questionable habits in terms of food. And known for just being completely helpless as a baby bird fallen from the nest. But I would check the second locker. <laughs> I can just add water like a fucking champion. Oh man, you should see me make a pack of ramen. I It brings tears to the eyes. Flawless execution. It, poignant. Gordon Ramsay has to avert his eyes as if he has glared into the sun. It's too bright. You shine too bright. You look upon greatness. But yeah, again, remember, Ted's body was wrapped up in sheets in a way that Ted almost definitely could not have done on his own. Which means that, probably, Gary Mathias survived more than 8 to 13 weeks in the wilderness, surrounded by food and fuel, without attempting to start a fire or eat it. What the fuck? It doesn't make sense. It doesn't make any sense. He went through several rations. Yeah, so they're not, like, like, shy about this. This is a case of him just... Yeah, he's not shy about this, but this is also in the case of him, like, panicking and immediately leaving, without, like, having a chance to look around. He has. Yeah, they've been eating they've been eating canned rations. And yet Ted Weir loses eighty to a hundred pounds over the course of what what had to have been agonizing weeks of starvation. Also, it's important to know that the men's bodies were found to the northeast of the trailer. A quarter mile to the northwest, police discovered three wool forestry blankets and a switched off flashlight lying by the side of the road. Um, they couldn't determine how long those items had been there, but they suspected that they might have some connection to the men. So they think that three of them survived to the main campsite and went on some sort of expedition with forestry blankets and a flashlight and then abandoned those items and returned to the trailer for reasons completely unknown. There's also the matter of distance here. The forest service camp was 19.4 miles from the car and the bodies of Madruga and Sterling were 11.4 miles from the car. On the night the men disappeared, they were wearing extremely light jackets, as we've already mentioned, or no jackets in the case of Ted Weir, and clothing with indoor shoes, and snowdrifts in the area that night were four to six feet high. So just, just think about the logistics of this for a second. So, that is at best a clumsy height. Before we get into the police's official explanation of this incident, I just want to reiterate this is We have a group of five men who hate the cold and the wilderness and had an important basketball tournament the following morning that they were determined to go to. While driving home, they decide to make an impromptu drive up a rough, unlit mountain road that none of them were familiar with, but managed to navigate with expert precision in a car that Jack Madruga exclusively drove. He did not allow anybody else to drive this car, and it was his baby. He did not like to risk yeah. damaging this car. Their car gets stuck. And instead of easily pushing it out of the snow, with all five of them, like they could have, they decide to abandon a functional warm car with gas in the engine, hike 20 miles in the dark through four to six foot high snowdrifts in indoor clothing before freezing and starving to death over the course of three months at a campsite filled with food and fuel which they do not touch. Four of them, presumably, we don't actually know Gary Mathias's ultimate fate, um, but at least three of them died outdoors, but the fifth was found wrapped in eight bedsheets, tucked in a way he could not have done himself, next to a gold watch of unknown origins. To be clear, that's the case. That's the, now, that's, that's the whodunit. I'm, I'm not going to say that I have a sterling reputation for sanity, but that is bug nuts fucking insane. Right? I have limits. 
I have limits, but normally when I'm like that is nuts. When I'm like out of control, nuts. I'm like, okay, I'm I'm like drunk in Union Square by myself at three in the morning, and I need to go home. Like that's that's my normally. You know, J- Janelle needs to call it a night. Needs to, needs to tap out. Needs to head 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 back into the warmth. Sometimes I think, man, maybe I should go to Staten Island, but then the insanity passes, and I come out the other side. You come out wiser, more knowledgeable. But somehow no, changed. you don't go into Staten Island. You you just don't. You come to your senses and you avoid that fucking island. Mm. Um, just get through it. If you resist the urge long enough, it will pass. It will pass. You just just take deep breaths, head between your knees, and remember that the Staten Island ferry is full of degenerates. So, in case we were wondering, cause, you know, we've we've presented you some strange evidence. Here is the police's official version of events. This is what they think happened. This case has not come to any resolution, and Gary Mathias's missing persons case is very much still considered open. But this is what they think happened. So, it turns out that Mathias had friends in a place called Forbestown, which is a little town between Chico and their homes in Yuba County. This is why they're called the Yuba County Five, by the way. They lived in Yuba County, that's where they were heading the night that they disappeared. At the time of their disappearance, the exit that you would need to take to get to Forbestown was very, very easy to miss, especially in the dark. And police believe that the men must have missed this exit in the dark while trying to visit Gary Mathias's friends and ended up heading north instead into the mountains. A couple days before the disappearance, they later realized, a ranger had gone out to the trailers that the men were found in on a snowcat, which is apparently the only vehicle they have on these mountains, to clean the snow off of the rooftops. So somebody drove a snowcat from the mountain where their car was- from the road where their car was found to the trailers where they were found to clean the snow off. And this would have left a- So there was a path. Yes. So they think that the men may have spotted the snowcat's tracks in the snow and decided to follow those tracks, thinking that the tracks led to civilization. The police believe that Sterling and Madruga actually died on the hike in. They believe that both of them succumbed to hypothermia and laid down in the snow for a nap that they never woke up from. They think that the other three made it to the trailer, but for some reason chose not to access the supplies available. They believe that Matthias survived for at least some period of time and used the military can opener to open the rations. From there, it's a little cloudy. They know that Ted survived for somewhere between 8 to 13 weeks, and they believe that he was outlived by either Matthias, Hewitt, or both, who would have wrapped him in the sheets after his death, shortly before succumbing to hypothermia themselves. What they think may have happened is that they think sometime before or just after Ted's death, Gary Mathias may have tried to hike out to find civilization, to find help, but that some natural forces overcame him and his body is now somewhere in the woods and impossible to recover. So that's the official version. See if you can spot some issues. I personally have several. Hewitt was also found outside. Yes, Hewitt was found outside. But Hewitt was found near the trailer site. So they believe that Hewitt okay. died outside in some sort of delirium, or Hewitt tried to hike out and quickly okay. died. They they believe that, that, yeah, somebody tried to hike out of the site at some point. So they think that they either tried to hike out together, or Matthias went and Hewitt stayed behind, and then Hewitt hiked out after Ted died. But they know that somebody was probably on the site at the time of Ted's death, and then, yeah, left, died, something happened couple of issues with the police version of events. The police really place a lot of stock on the idea that they are trying to get to Forbestown. Mm-hmm. Matthias wasn't particularly close to his friends in Forbestown. They hadn't seen him in at least a year at the time of his disappearance. 
would he really And it's weird to just pop in late at night. It's weird to pop in, yeah. It's it's at least it's late at night because they left the university at ten PM, got their snacks, and got back on the road. So they're probably, you know, at least ten thirty, eleven here. Uh, and they were found seventy miles from the university. So they had to go leave the, the university at uh ten PM, get their snacks, and drive seventy miles. That's that's a hike. Mm-hmm. So and like these are not men who like to change plans. Well, Matthias is, but his his friends was weren't. Um, yeah. But and he wasn't in control of the car. No, he was not. But Gary Matthias was the one who had constantly nagged his mother. Don't let me oversleep. Don't let me oversleep. We have an important game. Don't let me oversleep. So if he was so mm-hmm. concerned about missing the game, he was concerned about oversleeping. Why would he decide to have this spontaneous late night visit with these friends he hadn't seen in a year with four men who did not know them the night before an important basketball game? That seems a little, I don't know. It's deeply odd. Like, I would never, in the company of, like, four people who do not know a friend of mine, maybe one person they don't know. Not four. Just casually pop in. Yeah, five of us are showing up unannounced. And, uh... I, I better be tight with that kind of person if I'm bringing anybody over unannounced. Yeah. The other problem, which the police themselves point out in their own story, they point out that if they were trying to get to Forbestown and miss the turnoff, driving into the mountains doesn't make any sense. People who no, genuinely like, think they are lost... It's obviously not on the way to Forbestown. Yeah, and people who are genuinely lost tend to double back and move in kind of a circular pattern. They don't just, like, pick a random direction and fucking commit until they physically can't go mm. that way any further. That's not... Their behavior patterns after where they ended up compared to where Forbestown is doesn't make any sense for somebody who thinks they're lost. Lost people no. are, move in circular patterns. Yeah, like, they're, they're scanning. Yeah, so they don't, they don't even understand that, and this is their own story. They also don't understand, why would you leave a perfectly functional car that has heat, light, and gas? Why, yeah. if you have a warm car to sit in, even if you don't realize you can push it out, which they must have been able to realize they could push it out, why set off like on it's a- the first thing you try. Yeah. Instead, why abandon this car and set off on a night hike in thin jackets instead of just pushing the car out? Why are you doing that, buddy? <laughs> These were dudes from Northern California whose parents routinely tried to drag them out into the woods to go camping. So this this could mm-hmm. not have been there f- and refused. Well, they would go sometimes. It's just they didn't like mm-hmm. the uh, yeah. Bill Sterling didn't like the particular fishing cabin, but a couple of them did go with their families every now and then. So this could not have been their first rodeo with getting a car stuck in the snow. There's no way this is the mm-hmm. first time they've ever encountered this. It's Northern California, and like upon getting to the site, the police immediately realized that the car could have easily been pushed out. This was not a, a puzzle. They realized this right away. This is not subtle. Yeah. Furthermore, if you remember, the guys had a map of California with them in the glove compartment. Mm-hmm. Even if they did miss the turnoff to Forbestown, they should have been able to look at the map and realize where they fucked up. And once they were on the mountain, they should have been able to check the map and realize there is nothing out there. Never mind that the simple passage of time, like, when you've gone a certain distance and you haven't found what you're looking for, turn back. Yeah, absolutely turn back. This is a detail we haven't mentioned this so far, but, um... Downhill from where the car got stuck, because they were they were going up a mountain uh, as they traveled along this road. About eight miles downhill, along the side of the road, there was a lodge. Like a bed-breakfast-type lodge thing. 
that they would have had to pass on the passed. way in. Apparently, it was it's quite hard to miss. So if you think you're stuck and that there's no salvaging your car, why wouldn't you just turn Would around? You walk into the woods. Yeah. Rather than go back to the building you know is there. I mean, eight miles in bad weather is a lot, but at least you know for a fact that it's there. And you don't have to hike blindly into the woods. You literally just have to follow the road. Just go, mm-hmm. and you're going, you're walking downhill. It's downhill yeah. on a packed and, like, road. Even if they followed a trail. Even if they followed a trail. Yeah. Like a trail, like a trail that is obviously made by a, like, all-terrain vehicle into the snowy woods is way less certain than just following a road with tamped down snow. And, like, the even hiking into the woods following that trail, even if there was a slight trail, they still would have had to hike through snowdrifts. Six, mm-hmm. four to six foot high snowdrifts. Or just follow the road. Yeah. It, I... I've broken the Jessica. It's, it's massively against what you would do in, logically in this situation. It's going against the grain and doing something much harder and much less sensible when the easy choice is just to walk back. There's numerous easy choices here, but that's, yeah, that's one of them. You know that there is a building that is open 24-7 down this road. Just go there. Yeah, it, there's lights. People are drinking. It's a good time. The other thing is, like, how far do you have to hike into the wilderness before you realize that you have made a mistake and you should go back to the warmth of your car? Because, again, the car was fully functional. They could have turned it on and heated up. Yeah, for me, the first time the, the, the first time I mentioned going back is the moment... We go back. ...the water sneaks through my height... Like, the, the, the snow sne- like starts seeping through my high tops. We get three steps in and we're That's like... That's the moment I stop. Nope. We're done. Fuck this. The... The moment I get a bit of snow in my underwear, I'm we're done. done. I'm done. I'm out. No. Like, just the mere fact of, like, like it's extreme, like, as a northerner, it is extremely difficult to even walk through a foot of snow. Two feet, like, is very difficult. Like, it's exhausting. Yeah, this is hard exhausting. going. Exhausting. It's cold. This is hard going. It's hard going. I feel it's miserable. Unbelievably put out if I have to walk up a slightly inclined sidewalk in yeah. Manhattan, the most urban place on earth, uh in good weather. That's inconvenient for me. Yeah. I don't like it. I will I will go somewhere else in the city to avoid having to do this. These guys are and voluntarily hiking in indoor clothing without jackets or proper shoes through 4 to 6 foot high snowdrifts for no apparent reason. And as badly frostbitten as Ted was, and as, you know, like, you have two men who die along the way. They don't start feeling sick right before they die. They don't just be like, bleh, like, all at once. They start feeling real bad quite a bit earlier than that. I've told my story on this podcast before about my brush with hypothermia, and it is not a good feeling. It does not feel good. Nobody is like, yes. It feels real bad. This, This is not, you're not fucking chasing this dragon. People are not intentionally giving themselves hypothermia for the thrill. You just, you feel shitty and yeah. cold and heavy. And then you it's not a try to high. lie down and die. It's not, it's not a fun high. This is not, people aren't playing the hypothermia game like they're playing the knockout game or the choking game. Like, this is not a fun thing. There's no rush here. Mm. These are people who hate hiking and are not equipped for it. Do you really keep hiking until two of your friends literally drop dead in front of you 
and then keep on hiking another eight miles. Like, at what point does someone in the group decide, suggest, like, hey, this was a poor choice. We should go back to the car and just sit in it and warm up. Because mm. it's available. We can do that. That's a thing we can do. But apparently not. Yeah. There's, again, even in the official police account, there's also no explanation for why... For the watch. Oh, for the watch, yeah. They've, they've never explained whose watch that is or where it came from. They've never located who that could have belonged to. But there's also no explanation for why they don't touch the supplies. No. These these guys are out there for two to three months. Like, what are they doing for two to three months? What do they do? Do they just look at each other all day? Are they just walking around the woods? Yeah, just having philosophical conversations in, in, in the dark dank, cold cabin. Like, just the fact that, like, they don't board up the window. Like, even if something was there and then got blown away, it's just, it's odd. And, like, they're out in the woods. There's nothing to do. I can fucking ransack. No. I, I get real bored in an hour and start ransacking things. These guys are out there for months. I, I for the longest time, thought that I was incapable of the emotion of boredom. But it just turns out that my attention span is so short... I'm literally not even aware of getting bored before my attention immediately turns to something else. Oh, I'm like a basically like, a purse dog with separation anxiety. If I'm left alone, I just start destroying things. Mm. So I just start, start tear, you just start tearing up the cushions and eating the couch. It's <laughs> it's genuinely weird that you wouldn't explore the entire thing. Yeah, there's two to three of you, and even if Ted can't walk, there's somebody somebody can walk. Somebody's somebody has time to rip up this campsite and. Does nobody say, I'm getting really cold, let's burn something? There's a fireplace? Open the lockers. Like, they've, they've sort of, the police have offered this kind of explanation that, like, maybe they were afraid of getting in trouble. Maybe they thought that they weren't supposed to access this stuff. But, like... Sure. Of all the federal agencies okay. that exist, there's probably few that I fear less than the Forestry Service. Never mind, like, these are not, like... This is life or death. Like, like this is life or death. I don't think that, like, especially the men who made it there, like, speaking for myself, when I'm in a very, very, I'm very, very upset, I don't always make the most rational decisions, I might worry about breaking into a place if I was stranded or something, because I thought I might get in trouble. If I thought I was going to die, I'm doing it anyway. Yeah, you hit a point where you don't care. <laughs> like, when the when yeah. the daughter party were in this exact situation, they ate each other. Uh, these guys yeah, won't even open literally readily available rations. So what the fuck, guys? Yeah, they don't even have to eat dead. Yeah, they're not. They're not even burning. There's. You're in the forest. There's. There's wood and stuff. They're not burning anything. There's no attempt. There's matches no. just lying around. I. I am a person who's very conscientious of, of repercussions and is very conscientious of getting in trouble. But like, I'm not really gonna and fear. Like, I do respect the fire. The forestry, like, the forestry service, service, but I don't fear their wrath if I break in. While literally teetering on the verge of death, and use some of their matches. I think, you I know, what, you send me an invoice, we'll I settle this. Use their, if I use federal supplies to save myself from the brink of eternity, I don't think they're gonna come hunting me down on their snowcats, just vroom vroom, like like <laughs> people chasing James Bond, the forestry like mafia. firing over the. Just fire, like, just chasing me down, hunting me for the sin of using their matches. Yeah, no, I... I think they'd be cool. I pay it. my taxes. And I don't think... <laughs> like, it, and it's like, I think it's underestimating these men and their general level of functioning to say, like, well, maybe they just... Didn't dawn on them felt to bad. live. It just didn't dawn on them that they might not get in they trouble. Should, they didn't, didn't think that they might want to live. 
there's also the matter of the sighting. So we talked, I alluded to this. It's foreshadowing, kids. Mm. I mentioned at the beginning of the episode that there was another sighting of the men that has never been confirmed. But during the months between the men's sight disappearance and the discovery of their bodies, people were phoning in hundreds of sightings of them. This happens any time anybody's gone missing. There's probably been oh, yeah, a sighting absolutely. of Madeline McCann in every square inch of the world by this point. I've seen her myself. Just, just walking around. We're buddies. You and a three-year-old who disappeared oh, a yeah. decade ago, at least? 2003? She's been gone a long yeah, we're time. we're tight. So, these guys got sightings saying they were everywhere from Ontario to Florida. And these leads obviously weren't credible because they were in the woods. They were not in the woods of Ontario. Mm-hmm. But there was... Where did they go? They left their vehicle. They couldn't have gone fast. Yeah, it's weird that they didn't really... I, I don't know. I don't know how hostile the winters are in Northern California. I assume that they're very... There was one possibly legitimate sighting, though, from the night the men disappeared. So, sometime after 5.30pm on the night of the disappearance, a man named Joseph Shones drove up the same mountain road in a VW Beetle. Because apparently everybody in the 1970s was just into off-roading with deeply non-off-roading vehicles. Very I mean, strange. it was a road. It was just—it was a like, shitty. Why road. are we going ball while going booty back? I have no idea. Well, he was up there because he wanted to check the conditions because he was thinking of taking his wife and daughter up there the following weekend and wanted to see if the snow oh, was too bad. Yeah, out. he's just scouting. When he was about fifty yards beyond the spot where Jack Madruga's car got stuck, his own car got stuck, and while he was trying to push it out, he suffered from a mild heart attack. So. Oh, yeah, boy. in his weakened state, Shones went and laid down in his car with the heat going and the engine on, which is what the men should have fucking done, but I digress. Sometime, he stayed there for hours, because the heart attacks are not pleasant. These are not a recreational activity. No. Sometime after night had fallen, Shones said that he heard whistling noises coming up the mountain, and he got out of his car to see if he could get some help. He says that he saw a group of people that looked like a group of men and a woman carrying a baby walking ahead of a car in the headlight beams, talking to each other. He says that he yelled out for help, and as soon as he did so, the headlights went off and the talking stopped. He then went back to lie down in his car again, and sometime later, he thinks, he's not sure, because, again, heart attacks are deeply unpleasant, and you're not always 100% with it. He thinks it may have been a couple hours later, though, he saw flashlight beams outside of his car windows. He says that he yelled out again for help, but the lights went out and the people holding them went away. Eventually, in the night, Shone's car ran out of gas, and instead of wandering into the woods, he walked the eight miles back down the road to the lodge, called Mountain House, which uh, he'd actually stopped for a drink there on the way up. And as he was walking back down the mountain to reach the lodge, he passed Jack Madruga's abandoned car. He is actually the reason that they found the car in the first place, because when he heard about the the missing men a couple days later, Mm -hmm. he phoned in a tip that he had seen an abandoned car up this mountain road. No one's entirely sure what to make of the sighting. Yes. Ask away. What the fuck? Yeah, that's my question, too. <laughs> a baby? Yeah, that's that's why nobody's really quite sure what to make of this sighting. Because, yeah, the they're... None of the men was actually a young mother carrying a baby. Is the I mean, problem. And the sighting is so... Unless they were doing something very different than what they they told their parents. Yeah. Like they are like, performing, like, some kind of theater troupe with, like, a surprisingly lifelike f- 
friggin' animatronic. Or they were off to an eyes wide shut party, and this was a cult baby. I don't know. I don't know what this story is. Um, but that's what he says. He says that he saw a group of men and women walking ahead of a car in the flashlight, be- in the headlight beams, um, being basically frog marched up the mountain. And then he says several hours later, there's people outside his car with flashlights who, and they're intentionally ignoring his cries for help. So, um, he can't be entirely sure. Nobody can be entirely sure how much of this story is true and how much of this might be a, like, my heart is dying based delusion because he was having a mm-hmm. heart attack. But um, he did accurately report where the car was. So this is the closest thing we mm-hmm. have to a sighting. We don't... Albeit at a very different time when he was feeling well enough to make it back to the lodge. Yeah, we don't really know what he saw on the mountain, but it's it's hard to believe that he wouldn't hear something because he was only 50 yards from where mm-hmm. the car got stuck. And he was up there. He was already stuck in his car by the time the men drove up. And it's weird if they got stuck and they are completely fine, why wouldn't they see it and go see? The whole thing is incredibly strange. In any case, this case hasn't gotten nearly the amount of attention that I think that it should get. But for a pretty obvious and unfair reason, which we've sort of been dancing around the entire time... And sort of explicitly saying the entire time, but the reason people don't give a shit about this case is because... Is they're disabled. Yeah, they're disabled. The men were mentally disabled. That's 100% it. So people hear about this case, and unless you actually sit through an hour and a half detailed explanation of all the different ways in which the case is strange doesn't make any sense, your first instinct for most people is sort of to think, eh, like a bunch of mentally disabled men got lost in the woods and then they died. It's tragic, but it's not mysterious. To which... Yeah, it doesn't seem that weird on the face of it. Like, if you tell me, like, oh, like, five mentally disabled slash mentally ill men went out into the woods and then they never came back, I'm like, oh, that's really sad. Like, it doesn't make me curious. It just makes me sad. Yeah. I actually pitched this case to Crack.com for one of my articles, and it was rejected for that reason, that they didn't think anyone would find it mysterious because you need to you need to read into it an incredible amount of detail before you understand why it's mysterious. But also, fuck you, it is mysterious. <laughs> it's And I also think you've actually managed to frighten me. <laughs> which is quite, quite the endeavor. Just crumbling what's left I've... of that psyche. Just I, I think you deserve a like a marriage Just badge. You sew it on your crushing sash. Crushing what was left of your sanity beneath my feet. Yeah, we've I mean we're just sort of rehashing at this point, but again Two of the men were not intellectually disabled. Jack Madruga had learning disabilities, but he was not what they considered at the time, quote-unquote, mentally retarded. He had served in the military. He was ex-military, and he had a driver's license, and he could drive. He was far from helpless. I don't have a fucking driver's license, so he was doing better than me. Gary Mathias, again, the one they never found, had no learning disabilities or intellectual disabilities of any kind. He had schizophrenia, but was very high-functioning when he was on his medication. And at the time of his disappearance, he had been symptom-free for two years. And again, he... Fully stable, being treated. He is ex-military, and he had a driver's license as well. So he's a fairly stable human being with friends and a job. And they know that he survived for at least some period of time. He... There's no reason why Gary Mathias would not have thought to start a fire. That makes any amount of sense. None. And None. people have sort of bring up, oh, he's schizophrenic, but going off of his medication wouldn't necessarily have caused an immediate relapse in schizophrenia. 
No, it increases your risks, but, like, generally speaking, the reason why some schizophrenics have a relapse is for the first little while they feel fine. Yeah, um, and we now understand that around a third of people who uh, reach remission with medication, if they go off their medication, around a third of people are just kind of fine. Um, mm. If you've been in remission for a year on your schizophrenia medication and you get weaned off of it, yeah, you've got about a one in third three chance of never having another episode again. And even the other people who do relapse have, you have some time. Your symptoms don't come back mm -hmm. immediately. You normally are okay for a bit before you have another episode. So, um, Matthias was on a type of medication that you only took once per week. He wasn't even on a daily antipsychotic. He... Okay, so he should have been fine for quite a while. Yeah, he had taken his medication just before leaving. And he didn't bring it with him because he had no reason to expect that he was never coming home. So... He, the withdrawal from his antipsychotic was probably unpleasant, but it was a once-weekly thing. And again, you, you normally mm -hmm. have some time before you get back into full-fledged illness once you stop taking these drugs. There's also a lot of misunderstandings and unfair assumptions when it comes to people with low IQs and learning disabilities. Mm -hmm. I've worked with mentally disabled kids uh, who have IQs in about the same range, in about that 70-ish range. I used to work with kids with FASD, which is... Yeah, and they tend to struggle with abstract thought. Yeah. But not necessarily with just basic reasoning. Yeah, they tend to get easily overwhelmed with new information. When you're presenting new information, you have to present it at a slower pace. You have to have lots of repetition, clarification. But except in extreme cases, people with learning problems and intellectual disabilities will not let themselves die surrounded by food yes. they won't let themselves like, starve to death surrounded by easily accessed food or freeze to death surrounded by matches and easily accessed fuel yeah like people with intellectual delays to this degree like frequently complete high school yeah they do uh there's a big difference between like someone you know you might struggle to understand shakespeare or interpret a poem to your english teacher's satisfaction but, like, you know, Derrida is probably beyond you, but then again, he's beyond most people. Fuck Derrida. Um, Fuck him. For having an angry <laughs> night. Uh, yeah, there's a big difference between somebody who doesn't fully understand organic chemistry and somebody who will literally let themselves starve in the presence of food. Those are two very different levels of functioning. It's a, not a, just a matter of degree. It's a matter of... It's in kind. These guys played on a basketball very team. Very different. They, if, if you're capable of playing basketball, driving a car... You are capable of eating food that is readily available. And again, mm -hmm. one of the cans had been opened with a military P-38 can opener, which if you look it up, go online and look up what a military P-38 can opener looks like. It looks like the unholy union of a straight razor and a staple remover. It is not easy to use if you don't have military training. They are almost certain that Matthias survived to reach the campsite because the, the his can opener had been used and his tennis shoes were there. He... Mm -hmm. He was there. And he like, had... Holy crap. Yeah, I told you. There... That looks like a hole punch. It does. It looks like a weapon. I'd... If I saw that thing in the wild, my first assumption would not be, oh, good, and now I can have beans. It looks like somebody turned a hole punch into an atomahawk. I would use it to fend off a rapist before I would use it to open dinner. That would be my first thought of its use. Like, oh, there must be some kind of those newfangled, you know, like, self-defense weapons you put can put on a keychain. It's chain. not intuitive. It's not an intuitive tool to use, and it had been used, like... Well, it had been opened, the can had been opened smoothly, so there's no, you know, a, a person who didn't know how to use this can opener would just sort of helplessly hack at the lid. 
So, what the hell happened, though? The, the men's intellectual disability does not even begin to explain what happened to them. It is not a good enough explanation. Nowhere close. No. There are so many... There are so many holes in this. There are so many turn points that it's baffling that the four of them could have ended up where they ended up. But unfortunately, yeah, people's people's prejudice about mental disability has kept people from really becoming intellectually curious about this case. So there's been no real progress on the case since the 1970s, and the only people still talking about it are me and Reddit. That's about it. Weirdos on Weirdos the internet. Weirdos on the internet. For the record, though, before we leave you... The families of the men did weigh in on what they think happened, and the families of the men fully believed that this was foul play. The families of the men believed that these that their boys would never have gone up there of their own accord. They believed that these guys were either chased or led into the woods, and I think it's Ted Weir's family believe that the men may have accidentally seen something that they weren't supposed to see and ended up in the woods because of it. They believe that in order for their boys to do something so out of character, they would have had to have been scared absolutely shitless they were they were running from somebody they were being chased by somebody or somebody had it out for them in some way that's what the families think it's 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 hard because like there's no physical like because all of this is like trying to figure out the psychology of these men yeah but there's a certain it make that makes more sense to me it makes more sense for them to have been frightened by something or tricked by someone than that they just kept going unless they were afraid to turn back. Yeah, it just the whole the whole case is incredibly bizarre. It's all so odd. It doesn't make a whole lot of sense. But they don't believe that these men would ever have gone into these woods voluntarily. And unfortunately, we will probably never really know what happened because this was this was a crime scene, maybe, that wasn't discovered until months after the events had taken place. The area was a hostile, snowy mountainside that was besieged by snow in the week that this happened. So any evidence was already immediately covered and inaccessible. And by the time they got there in June, everything was melted and the bodies were already decomposing. Creepy. Yeah, we live in a strange world. So I'm going to go with alien brain parasites? That's is that the most comforting answer? I, that works for I me. I don't know. It's kind of there's there's no there's no the good answer. The true snow cats came down the mountain to tra- to wreak their vengeance upon those who would name snowmobiles after the touch. Ah them. yes, possession by angry mountain lions. That's, I mean, it makes about as much sense as the official story, at this point. So I don't know. What do you guys think? Let us know what you think happened to the Yuba County Five. You. Please, Please do. do, because until then, we're just going to be rocking back and forth in corners by ourselves, having gentle nightmares. The sooner we can figure this out, the sooner we can have closure. And sleep. And a and sense sleep. of purpose sweet, and hope. Sweet, sweet release. Yep. I will not feel childlike joy again until this is settled. For me, it'll be about three minutes. Okay, well, one of us is a goldfish, and the other is a person with a long-term memory. Mommy's bringing me chocolate milk tomorrow. I have been researching this and watching documentaries on this case late into the night for weeks, so it's already too late for my sleep. This is... Mm. But not too late for you, dear listeners. No. Well, it is now. We just made you sit through an hour and a half of that, so you're probably irreparably damaged. So, uh... Irreparably harmed. Oops. Yeah. Give us your thoughts. That has been... Give us your theories. Give us your money. 
Also that. Hand over your jewelry. This is a robbery. All in the bag. Set it down gently. <laughs> this is a robbery. No one has to get hurt. I have been Jessica. And I have been a deeply traumatized version of Janelle. And we are fat, fat French, French, and, and fabulous. fabulous. As always, thank you so much for listening to Fat, French, and Fabulous. We're really sorry about the month-long delay. It was entirely my fault, uh, so you should direct all hate mail and severed horse heads towards me, and not towards Jessica. She had nothing to do with it. Um, We hope that the episode was worth the wait. We hope that you like it. It's one of my personal favorite topics. Um, If you did like the episode because there's something deeply wrong with you, um, or if you like the podcast in general, or if you just think that we're a couple of foxy people, we would really love it if you would leave us a review. Reviews really help us out. They help new people find the podcast. They help us spread like some sort of virus, um, which would be great. So if you could leave us a review on iTunes, on our Facebook page, on Stitcher, uh, anywhere else that you review podcasts, that would be fantastic. Um, We deeply appreciate it. If you do like the podcast, we hope that you've remembered to subscribe. You can subscribe to us on iTunes, on Overcast, on Stitcher. Again, anywhere that you can subscribe to podcasts. You can also find us on social media. You can find us on Twitter at FatFrenchFab, and you can find us on Facebook at our Fat French and Fabulous page. Um, you can also find us individually on social media in case you only like one of us. We won't be too terribly offended and we won't plot to kill you. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at VeryBadLlama. You can find Jessica on Twitter at IAmNotALungFish because she continues to not be a lungfish. Uh, that's all we have for you this week. We will be back next week uh, with some sort of topic that will leave you nightmares for weeks to come. That's what we promised and that's what we do. We hope you have a great week and we'll see you then.